Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 261 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. That's Crow with an E. Like our page and respond to postings at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, or join our discussion group at facebook.com slash groups slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. You can listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on PRN.fm or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990. Just follow the instructions. PRN.fm has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805 and leave a message, your name, and indicate that it is for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know that you're a listener until I hear from you, so send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. Please don't be shy. I do really love to hear from you. Thanks to all the new donors. I think everybody understands that my circumstances have changed since I've been diagnosed with cancer that allopathic doctors agree is terminal but I'm trying to restore my health with alternatives with some assistance from mainstream medicine, such as fluid removal from my abdomen while my liver hopefully recovers and my tumors stabilize or decline. You can make a one-time donation via via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com where we are also infectiousmyth, one word. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want the show to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information that you're gleaning, for the support you get for some non-mainstream ideas, and the challenges to others. And now, if you want to keep me around, that's another reason to to donate as I'm exploring a lot of um, alternatives which are generally not covered by government medicine in Canada. I will report regularly on progress. This week, we get back to gender issues, and next week, I'll probably go back to my cancer. A lot has happened, and will happen this coming week. So let's go to our guest. Kathleen Lowry is an associate professor in the anthropology department at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. She has a BSc in biology and chemistry from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and an MA and PhD in anthropology from the University of Chicago. She's worked with indigenous communities in Paraguay and Bolivia for more than 20 years, and is currently working on a new project supporting workers for intellectually disabled adults in Edmonton. She's written a number of scientific articles, many concerning indigenous peoples, and is currently working on a book titled Shamanism and Vulnerability on the North and South American Great Plains. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Hi, David, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining me. So the reason for that your name um, came up was that you were recently asked to resign from your role as um, associate chair of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alberta, based on complaints from one of our students, which I believe have remained anonymous. They said that the learning environment is unsafe because of your gender critical views. So what do you know about the complaints and, you know, what's this background of gender critical versus whatever the students apparently want? Um, So I don't know a lot about the complaints because they are confidential. And I 
<clears throat> you know, I'm not against having a system of confidential complaints uh, if, if there's cases of something like sexual harassment. I think it, it's definitely important mm -hmm. that students have the ability to go and um, talk to somebody in the administration and say, listen, I'm, I'm afraid of, of some kind of backlash, but this is what's going on. So I, I don't have any problems with that, and I don't have any issues with students complaining. And I, I don't even, in, in theory, have a problem with the university deciding, oh, you have these views that are making students upset, and so we don't think you're good in this role. All of that, I think, is, um, you know, probably quite reasonable. What, what specifically made me upset in this case is the university's refusal to sort of say out loud why they wanted me gone. So their, their first approach was to kind of approach me and, and essentially ask me to resign. And I said, no, you're going to have to dismiss me. Um, and then they did dismiss me. But even though they had told me both in meetings with my chair and my dean what the issue was, they didn't want to put it, it was very clear they didn't want to put it in writing. So they wrote me this very uh, vague letter of dismissal that it wasn't in the best interest of the department for me to continue serving. And I wrote back and I said, could you just write me a more specific letter of dismissal? And uh, at this point, it was just the dean. And she said, no, I, I don't think it would be productive to do that. So then I went to my faculty association, um, and they are uh, helping me with a grievance because our, our service roles are covered by our um, contract, which includes academic freedom provisions. But, but more generally, I, I think um, these kinds of issues are not going away, that, that the current, sort of the current approach of um, many young people, and it's interesting, they've even done surveys about older people believing in free speech and younger people believing in safe spaces. So there is an inherent conflict here, and it's, it's going to hit universities. I mean, it already has hit universities a lot. It's going to continue to hit universities. And I think the approach my university has chosen I can see why they chose it, because it felt like, well, this kind of extracts us from an impossible situation. But they, they're going to have to figure out what to do in cases like this. If they, if they want to dismiss someone like me, and they do, um, they have to be able to say in writing why they're doing it and, and why it's just, you know. I, yeah, I mean, I can see there's sensitive accusations against somebody. Right. And, um, you know, you might need to maintain anonymity, but still they should be specific. They should say, you know, what happened and, and maybe when and, uh, you know, which things violated which rules. Right. Well, I mean, I think in my case, I, um, I don't believe I violated any rule. I know I, I never treated students unkindly or unfairly. It's just the fact that I, I have... Um, I expressed views that students consider threatening in and of themselves. So the idea that um, it's impossible to change biological sex so that mm. people can have whatever gender expression they, they like and people can be gender nonconforming and that's not only acceptable, but I think terrific if people are gender nonconforming, but that doesn't, that doesn't change your sex. And, and in terms of policy, sex should still be important in many instances. So those are my those are my views, which I have articulated in various venues. I think the one that that really caused a lot of problems was I put these views in my office door. Um, so quotes from gender critical feminists. 
and one of the reasons I, I did that is because these views really are suppressed in the public sphere. So mm-hmm. you have maybe heard that gender critical feminists have been kicked off Twitter, have been kicked off Facebook, have been have had their WordPress blogs shut down. I I was sending letters to the Edmonton Journal when these issues would come up and they would eventually one got published. Um, so, and it's interesting, I finally taught a course in the winter term and I don't think the complaints came from any students in this course. I think they came from students who, who were just aware a feminist like me was on campus. But one of the really interesting things in the course is, is we covered various things, but I, at the end of term, we did read some gender critical feminists. and. Students in the class didn't know that gender critical feminism existed. And and that's one of the things I was really concerned about is I think, especially among young people, their their perception is you either are 100% on board for the idea that trans women are women, or you're some kind of reactionary Christian conservative, and there's Mm -hmm. no other other position exists. And I I think that's... um, well, it's just a travesty that at a university, if we're if one of the things we say we're teaching students about is gender identity and the politics of sexual identity, you you're not teaching them if you're not presenting a huge sector of the views that are out there um, shaping the debate and shaping the discourse. Mm. So, um, I, I mean, feminism has a wide range of views. I mean, there are feminists who have tried to erase gender as, as well as gender critical feminists, right? And they're, well, they're all important. Well, I mean, there's, there's this whole, there's these different approaches to erasing gender. So one approach to erasing gender that, that I would say is the one that's predominant in the academy right now is blowing up everything, blowing up gender, blowing up sex, like people just self-identify and that's all there is. There are, there are people like me who call themselves gender critical feminists who say, um, biological sex is real and important. People have various forms of gender expression, but that that critique is really an important thing to hang on to because one of the points of feminism, I think, is to criticize certain forms of gender expression, to say that biological sex is real. We we cannot look at a person when they're born and say, oh, you're a boy, therefore you're gonna like this, this, and this, or you're a girl and you're gonna like that, that. You know this other set of things that's that's wrong, but but that also, but that the response isn't then. The response is if you're a boy who likes tea parties and dresses, that's fantastic. You're a boy who likes tea parties and dresses. Hurry for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But still, but uh, let me when just, you're born, yeah, okay. But, but let me just finish. The criticism part comes in where, so we're 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 both supportive of being more open-ended about gender expression. But we have to hang on to critique because if you can't hang on to critique, what happens to, like you've probably read, there's a million essays out there about toxic masculinity, right? So the mm-hmm. idea that if you raise a little boy to say, boys don't cry, toughen up, you know, right. mm-hmm. feelings, get out, you have to learn to fight. And if you can't fight your enemies, then you're not a real boy. Okay, if we just say like every form of gender identity expression is marvelous, we have no ability to critique that. Um, and, and so having the ability to be critical of some forms of gender identity expression is in fact important and central to the, to the feminist project and is actually central to the feminist project because we think this will make a better world. And then the, la- the other position, which is one that I don't share but I admire many feminists who do, is the gender abolitionists 
who say like we should totally blow up notions of gender altogether. I I I I see what the gender abolitionists mean that they say there is biological sex, so so you're born male or female, but after that. Um, any notion that there that there are any kind of gender qualities at all that's attached to any kinds of people should be abolished. I I see what they mean politically. Um, I guess I'm not. I guess I personally am not entirely convinced that that's a world that would ever really be possible. But that's another. But those are sort of rad fem. It's one of the reasons I don't call myself a rad fem because I'm not quite that radical a feminist. But I do admire those rad fems. Yeah, I mean, a problem I see with that view is that biological sex does influence things to some extent, like choice of jobs. Uh, I mean, there are jobs that are very physical, like construction. Right. And if, if we insist that we're going to have 50% female presence in construction, that might not really be physically possible because that work is, you know, harder for a woman who's you know, 10, 20% smaller and has, uh, you know, a musculature that's, that's different. And that, that doesn't have anything to say about lawyers or professors or, you know, the majority of modern jobs where, you know, sex is really close to totally irrelevant. Um, but to take an extremist view and say, there are going to be no jobs where there's a difference in gender balance um, I think that's a utopian ideal that right. cannot be achieved with sex existing. Well, I mean, I don't think I don't think gender abolitionists want to mandate that. I don't think gender abolitionists are saying, and therefore, construction work must be fifty percent female and fifty percent mm -hmm. male. I I think um, I think one of the good points they do make is is we don't know if we lived in a world without gender, we don't really know what people would choose to do, right? Mm -hmm. Never lived in such a world. So we can't make assumptions about what the percentages would be. And I, I think that's right. Although, as you were saying, one of the interesting things that studies have shown is um, to a certain extent in more gender egalitarian societies, you start to see more sort of sex segregation in certain kinds of professions because as people become more free to choose what they want to do, um, men sometimes do have a tendency to gravitate towards certain kinds of professions and women do have mm. a tendency to gravitate towards other kinds of professions when um yeah so so well, but i mean that's 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 its whole own interesting right I, I mean another observation is like you pointed out that it's it's fine if a if a boy wants to um um you know, wear dresses, go to tea parties, things like that. Right, who cares? And, and there yeah. are effeminate men like that is definitely true, but that doesn't mean that the majority of boys aren't gonna gravitate towards the trucks when they they get to the, right. I mean, we do, the we, room with toys. We don't, we don't know what would happen, right? We, we, mm. we have never run that experiment, but I guess, I guess I'm not, I think it's possible that if we were able to run that experiment, the gender-free world, we probably would see, you know, certain patterns of preference linked to sex, mm -hmm. but they it definitely wouldn't cover. And I, but I think some of the patterns of preference linked to sex might turn out to be quite surprising. Um, but I think there yeah. would, I do think there would be some. And I, and I, but I think a world in which we were just more relaxed about all of it, that's the mm -hmm. that I feel like that's why I became a feminist. I didn't become a feminist to support a world in which 
if a little boy likes tea parties and dresses, people think, oh my gosh, he's born in the wrong body and we need to, we need to start treating him with hormones. I, that is not the world that I, that I was ever fighting for when I became a right. And there definitely are, uh, like one of the jobs I find quite interesting is the job of secretary in terms of gender roles, because early in the 20th century, it was a totally male job. Mm -hmm. And then the wars came along and they needed, you know, it was a job that could easily be filled by women, mm -hmm. educated, you know, reasonably educated women. And so then it became a women's job. And I grew up in an area where if a guy was a secretary, you, you questioned his sexuality, right? <laughs> like, right because right. all the secretaries were women. Yeah. But gradually, as with nursing, again, you know, probably in the 1950s or 60s, a, a male nurse was looked at with a little bit askew um, because of these prejudices that, you know, change over time due to right. other factors. But, you know, if we're in a world where, where people could choose, it seems like a lot of men want to become nurses and a lot of women want to become doctors. Whether it'll ever be 50-50 is, is a good question. Right. But so that's, you know, that's what I've always felt like it's meant to be a feminist, is you're, you're trying to create a world in which um, people have more freedom to choose and we're much more relaxed about the choices that people make. And, and I, I don't see current gender identity ideology and, and the kind of reverence for gender involved in that. And, um, and this, this idea that it is possible to literally change sex and we should design our policies around that. I, I just, it's, in my view, it's so regressive. It has, it has nothing to do with feminist struggle. And I, I think people have argued that um, it kind of imposes gender norms because these men who want to become women, and, and it seems like it's, even though nowadays there's more girls who want to become men right uh, mm -hmm. right which is not the way it used to be but it seems that it's the men who want to become women um who who want to turn themselves into like objects of sexual desire right it's almost like a fetish it, that they're defining you know a woman is somebody who wears makeup and frilly dresses and all these other things right. like they're these, kind of enforcing the gender role right these very regressive gender stereotypes which which I, you know, for so long feminists have fought against to say that if, if I'm a woman who, who wears jeans all the time and, and never wears makeup or wears it twice a year, I'm, I'm no less, I'm not, I'm no less a woman than anybody else. And I, yeah, so the, the idea that this array of kind of regressive gender stereotypes equals womanhood, I, you know, I, I, I'm amazed to see how many, particularly academic feminists, are supporting it. I'm, I'm distressed to see this kind of pushed to young people as what feminism is. And that's part of why it's been, well, there's two reasons it's been so important to me to be kind of out about this. Is one, I, you know, I, I don't believe I've ever treated any student unfairly. But I, I feel like it's important for young people to know that feminists like me exist and that this whole world of feminism exists because they're not, they're not being given access to it in contemporary higher education. So that's one reason it's been important to me to be out about this stuff. The other, the other reason it's been important to me to be out about this is I, you know, I've gotten over the years 
more connected to various feminist networks. And gender critical feminists are really under relentless attack and, or gender critical feminists, radical feminists, right. abolitionists, whatever, there's, a, there's, an, there's an array of positions. But anybody who's not 100% on board for gender identity ideology, for, um, for saying trans women are women, um, they re- it's not a joke that, they're, that they really are subject to censorship, they're subject to dismissal from their jobs. Mm-hmm. And I, as an academic, I do have some protections that other people don't have. So I know so many women who cannot speak in their own names, who really are frightened, and they're not wrong to be frightened. I've also, you know, I don't want to out students, but I've also had students come to me. We, we hear a lot about the students who say that my views are threatening, but I've, I've spoken to a number of students who say, look, I've, I've, I think that the gender critical position is the correct one. But just in the social universe of young people right now, that's a kind of impossible to position to hold and still have friends. Mm. You, you would really be ostracized. And so, uh, you know, going back to universities, when universities promise students safe spaces, I, I think it's a promise that actually universities shouldn't make because they can't mm. hold it. Um, but also, universities are always making choices about safe for somebody. Right, that that it's going to be a safe space for students who support contemporary gender identity ideology. It's not a safe space for students who are persuaded by gender critical feminism. They 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 feel that they cannot speak out, and they're and they're not wrong to be afraid because look what happened to me, a tenured professor. Yes, you know. So mm-hmm. so you're not crazy if you think. Yes. And the, uh, sorry, I, I'll I'll go back to that point. Yeah. I'll, what the implications of the university's position are, mm-hmm. but, but I don't want to, you go ahead. Yeah, so I wanted to speak about safe spaces. Like I, mm-hmm. I went to university twice, once when I was, a, a, you know, almost 20. And then again, when I was about 50, okay. first studying biology and then Italian. And <laughs> right. I would say, I, I was, I had my nose in the air about the arts uh, back in the, 70s when I was first in university, uh-huh. but uh, biology was definitely not a safe space. I, I remember a grad course where the professor came in, threw a paper on the table, a copy for everybody, and said, "Come back next week and tell me what you think." So we thought, "Oh, that's good. Five minutes, <laughs> right?" So we come back next week, and um, he says, "What do you think?" And we don't want to say anything without knowing what he thinks. And so we're all trying to say kind of nice things about the paper. And after about 15 minutes of us floundering around, not wanting to give our actual opinion, uh-huh. he said, I thought it was a piece of crap. <laughs> and here's why. And, and he was trying to get us out of this space where everybody has to agree with everybody else. And we got to agree with the professor. Mm-hmm. And he wanted, us to, he wanted us to stand up and say, why did you give us this? It's it's garbage, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that that was kind of a lesson. And you know, when I was studying languages much later, it's like there were times when I was under pressure, right, to to perform, you know, deal with the critiques. Uh, I mean, when I got essays marked in a foreign language, there was red ink everywhere. It was mm-hmm. humiliating at times, right? Mm-hmm. But that was part of the learning process. If I wasn't sort of faced with kind of a brick wall, like you got to achieve this, you you have to express your views, you, you know, your views in a, in a creative or accurate way. So it seems like safe spaces, you know, there's a, 
you know, you should be safe in some ways, but if it's too safe, then you're not really learning. That's what I think. And, and I, yeah, I think that's true. And I also think universities don't really, there's a sneaky way in which they don't really mean it because they don't mean, no one ever suggests that the university should be a safe space for Christian conservatives, for example. Um, that's, you know, it's, it's just taken for granted. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, and maybe that's something that I once would have been comfortable with. I, you know, one of the strange things about this experience for me as a lifelong leftist feminist is when you're suddenly on the, you know, I've always been on the right side of whatever the university, you know, I've always been kind of a progressive. So all the university positions have been my position. So I've been, I think, very uncritical myself about some of these creeping trends. Like I, I know when I first heard about safe spaces, I thought, oh, you know, that, that I could envision various ways in, I, in which I thought that would be quite good. And I, I failed to anticipate some of the directions it would take. But at this point, I think that, um, yeah, I now, there, there are criticisms conservatives made maybe a decade ago or 20 years ago of some of these trends that at the time I, I thought, oh, well, they're just trying to hang on to their privilege or that's overblown. And, and now I think, I mean, some conservatives and then also the other people who really were, were worried about this were kind of the old fashioned Marx, like the angry old Marxists. And I, and I think in a funny way, um, although they're on very different sides of the political spectrum, the things that they're raising an alarm about, I, you know, I have to say myself, I, 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 I thought that they that they were misguided, and now I think, oh gosh, this is this is what they were worried about. This is this is the yeah. I think one of the tests is, um, you know, if there's a pro-life, anti-abortion club. And when I you know I've been pro-choice, probably all my life, but you know at first I thought, yeah, you know, get rid of these mm -hmm. kind of things, um, and you know why should they be showing photos of aborted babies to delicate little university students. <laughs> but now my, my feeling is that that's part of your education. Like if you can't have um, a position, I mean, if you don't have a position on this issue that's strong and grounded, um, then it may be offensive. But if you have a strong position, I am pro-choice and I think you're wrong and you go talk to them and tell them that you think that they're wrong, that's part of generating a discussion. So, so now I think, you know, it should be perfectly fine to have clubs that I completely disagree with. I disagree with libertarians too on economic <laughs> issues, but should we ban the libertarian club because they're advocating a, uh, an economy without a government? Right, right. No, I mean, I, I think this is exactly, this is exactly it. You know, this is, this is really, when I, I went to university at the University of North Carolina, which is a, a really good university, but in the South. And so there were a lot of Christian conservatives there and it was not unusual for student groups to go around in the dorms. So Christian evangelist student groups to go around, they would sort of knock on your door and give you Christian pamphlets or whatever. Mm -hmm. but, you know, it didn't, you, you could always be polite to them. It didn't do me any harm. And, and I wonder now, would that, you know, it'd be interesting with, is that still allowed? I mean, the, the, because I feel like there's been this, um, this supposedly progressive movement that in so many ways is 
so regressive and so reactionary and and um and so disrespectful in a sense of people's ability to form their own ideas and mm-hmm. you know it didn't it didn't destabilize my sense of self for an evangelical Christian to knock on my door and and talk to me about evangelical Christianity for right. minutes. Um, I think the problem is, uh, you know, places like that, if you'd gone around with, say, Black Power posters or, uh, you know, to talk about Black Power or Marxism, <laughs> you might have had a... A different response. So the, the, the challenge is, you know, if the conservatives say we want free speech, are they going to support? Um, you know, they're always going off about socialists and communists and right, and right. Uh, you know uh, that Black Lives Matter is racist and things like that. Are they going to support the right of people that they disagree with to speak? And, and I think that's a challenge for the right and the left, right? Like the the left now wants to cancel anybody who's a gender critical feminist but you know the right they they always complain about free speech when it's one of their guys who's being suppressed but they're not quite so i mean there are some who are true free speech icons but a lot of them are happy to suppress um you know left-wing views oh yeah they want all the marxists off campus and yeah Mm -hmm. so so there's there but it's interesting i mean you're absolutely right but it's interesting that if when I was in university, it was the, the conservatives who wanted the Marxists off campus, um, now it's the, it's the leftists who want the, the, you know, what is that guy, the, the UBC um, board chair who just resigned because he liked some, some Donald Trump tweet. I mean, I'm not a Donald Trump supporter, but I think, is that, is that the right way to handle, you know, is, is just canceling people who have their own views the right way to, to handle these things. Um, so it's, it's the same, it's the same, this form of the debate is the same, but who's occupying what role has kind of shifted. Yeah. Yeah, And it's, it's a real fundamentalism. Like I've heard of people who've been banned by friends because they say liked, uh, they, they were a friend with, J.K. Rowling or something, or, you know, we're connected with her page or something, like, without even actually saying anything in support or against. Like, I have people on my Twitter feed who I mostly disagree with, um, but occasionally they say something interesting, or it just (laughs) means that I kind of know what um, these people are saying. Yeah. Uh, why why do I want to sanitize my feet so it becomes an echo chamber of just people who right. I mean, uh, I think, agree with me? I think at the level of friendship, that's fine. If you feel like you don't want to be friends with somebody who likes J.K. Rowling's tweets, like people are allowed to choose their friends. That's fine. By mm-hmm. um, but I think that in the, the university is a different sort of place. And then the workplace, one of the points I wanted to raise today was kind of the issue of workplaces generally. So in, in my case, the argument of the university is that I have academic freedom for teaching and research, but in, in as undergraduate programs chair, that was an administrative position, so that's not covered by academic freedom. My faculty association disagrees, but, but anyway, whether, but let's say that we, let's say the university is correct. Um, let's say that the university is correct, that that's an administrative position, and so it's not covered by academic freedom. So what the university has essentially said is it's perfectly okay to fire gender-critical feminists because they say in any job that's not protected by academic freedom, 
this, this is what we decided to do. So that has implications for the whole university. So if you work in the registrar's office and your Twitter feed likes JK Rowling's tweet, maybe you can be fired if students complain about you. If you work at, if, right. if you do the, the, what is it, the, if you work in maintenance buildings and maintenance and your Twitter feed, you like JK Rowling and students complain about it. I mean, the university has essentially said, yes, that makes students unsafe and you can be fired. So that's bad within the university. But it's also bad across Canada because the university is kind of, in some ways, an arbiter of respectable opinion. Mm -hmm. Percy has essentially sent the message to all of Canada. If you have an employee who likes J.K. Rowling's tweet, and, and you, you can sack them for that. Now, I, I think you really, you can't have a democracy <laughs> under those kinds of conditions. You know, right. the, the debate over gender identity ideology is a huge live debate. It has really serious consequences. Bill C-16 was passed just recently. Policy is being rolled out on its basis just recently. So this is something that is a legitimate uh, issue of live debate for all Canadians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If the debate is framed in a way such that anyone who doesn't 100% agree that trans women are women can be sacked from their jobs. You know, we're not medieval peasants. We don't, we don't grow our own food. Being, the idea of being an unhirable person is quite a serious threat in a society like ours. Mm -hmm. that because if, if you become one of these dangerous canceled people and there are these kind of troops of flying monkeys following you around to make sure that everyone knows how terrible you are, it would, like, let's say you got sacked from one job and then eventually you ended up washing dishes in the back room of a cafe. They might turn up and say, oh my gosh, this cafe hired a transphobe to wash their dishes. Right. You're, you're unemployable anywhere. You, you cannot, you cannot have dem democratic deliberation under those conditions. So this is to go back to my university. The thing that I've really... This is what I've wanted all along within the formal, within sort of the contractual things that attach to my employment. I sort of can't ask for this. I can only ask to be reinstated to my position, which, you know, I, I so that is what I'm formally asking for. But what I really want is for the university to just issue a statement of what its position is, because if its effective position is gender critical feminists can be fired for their views. I, I think that's an extremely dangerous position to take. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think the university knows it, and that's why it doesn't want to say it out loud. But it has, in effect, taken that position. So what I really want to lean on is saying to the university, you have to articulate your policy on this. It's important for the university. It's important for non-academic staff at the university. And it's important for all of Canadian society for you to figure out what your position actually is and say it out loud. That's, that's, there's no, there's no formal procedure by which I can make them do that, but that's, that's really my fundamental concern. It, it seems you started by talking about your position, then you went off to mm -hmm. people who weren't academic, but it seems to me it makes a mockery of academic freedom because if you, you know, you're a professor with no appointments, um, you have academic freedom. As soon as you take an associate chair or a committee chair or, or some non-academic thing, then all of a sudden, you know, they can fire you from that position just because you like to J.K. Rowling tweet. Right. But I, I, you know, I agree with you 100%. I think it does make a mockery of academic freedom. But I'm not concerned just about academic freedom. I'm mm. concerned about what, what the university's decision implies 
for anyone in Canada employed anywhere who's dependent on their salary, on their wage for, for, right. for, for to stay alive, um, their ability to speak freely on this topic that has very consequential implications, and particularly it has really consequential implications for women. And the, the people I know who are concerned about this, who feel that they cannot speak in their own names or who have been punished in various ways. I mean, the only reason everybody's heard about my case is a colleague who is, doesn't share my views but is concerned about academic freedom wrote my case up in a very articulate way such that it received a lot of media attention. Mm-hmm. I know of other cases of people who have been fired to zero fanfare and, and, and all the other kind of feminist women who are trying to organize around this many of whom are doing it pseudonymously because, because they're afraid. And I, I, mm-hmm. I know how much fear is out there. And it's, it's, very, it's very upsetting. It's very upsetting. Yes. Um, okay, switch gears a little bit. Okay. So you're, you're clearly a feminist. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, the stereotype might be somebody who's dogmatic about your views. And if a man comes up and and a woman wants to talk about sexual assault, the man might talk about false convictions and, and say, mm-hmm. how can you not balance this? Or um, somebody might talk about domestic violence and then a man points out that more men get murdered every year in Canada than, than women. So in the past, how did you balance feminism and free speech on, on issues like that where your views were maybe challenged by somebody who, who you, you maybe thought was wrong? Right. I, well, I, let me, I'm not sure I have a great answer. You know, I, I was always a feminist. I wasn't really an activist in any respect. I was sort of feminist in the sense of equal pay for equal work and mm-hmm. her choice. That's sort of, you know, your, your standard, bog standard feminist, but it, it only became a concern something that I became more, more active about once I started following um, trans activism a little more. I will say that I, I don't think I was great in the, I mean, I, I think the position I hold now and, and what I think now really has been transformed by what I've, a little bit what I've been through and, and a lot what I've seen other women go through who don't have the protections of academic freedom. Because, for example, uh, the the case of safe spaces. When I first heard about this maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I remember I had read there was a blog, on some blog there was a male philosophy professor who was talking about how he loved to use abortion as as a subject in class to to kind of talk about fundamental moral debates or how you figure out fundamental. um, and 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 he said it was so great that he that they could have really freewheeling discussions in his classes and he made sure that everybody was able to express their views. And I thought, you know, he thinks that's a freewheeling discussion, but if he's teaching large classes, it is undoubtedly the case that there are some some young women in his classes who have had abortions and they're not going to speak about that because they're not going to want to reveal that to their classmates. So that you think, what you think of as an open space is is often constrained in ways that you don't understand because you don't have a certain kind of experiential history. And I I do, I still think that's true. So when I first heard about safe spaces, I thought, 
maybe this will be a way to get that philosophy professor dude to be more mindful of who actually does feel safe in this space. And, and, and I, I, I still, um, I still see real value in that. Like I, I definitely think it's true that universities have been dominated by white men so that there are ways in which being invited into a conversation that's already been shaped in so many ways is not gonna feel, just because we say, oh, you know, now racialized people, you're welcome. Now indigenous people, you're welcome. Now women, you're welcome. That they're not gonna necessarily feel comfortable. So how do you deal with that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm still really sympathetic to the arguments that gave rise to safe space. And I, and I think in the past, I probably have fallen more on the side of, oh, well, let's limit certain kinds of speech because it, it might make people. So I don't, I don't know what the perfect answer is. I guess I just have a really visceral feeling that what we've got right now is, is not the right answer that we haven't that this is still unfolding but we have not we definitely have not landed in the right spot currently mm -hmm. well uh, yeah you can you can see if you're far on one side mm -hmm. that there there are people who are going to feel uncomfortable in university i mean when i went to university the first time there were relatively few women in the sciences i think i remember one woman in geology for example mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and i'm sure she did feel um uh, unsafe in some ways, or maybe not unsafe, but you know, uncomfortable at least. And certainly, if you were an engineering student, I mean, the uh, the engineering student celebrations in those days were incredibly misogynistic, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, I'm sure that the few women who were in engineering just had a really, really hard time. And there's mm -hmm. probably a high dropout rate because they just couldn't handle um, right. handle it. But I think now we're at sort of the opposite end where where you know um, where if somebody mentions Gandhi, I, I heard this recently that you know well he's not any he's not a saint because he said racist things about black people in the in his early years in South Africa, right that that we can't talk about anything because uh, it, it's going to upset somebody. Um, I, I wanted to move on maybe to see if your work with indigenous people in South America had informed this at all. I mean, do these people think a lot about gender? Do they have a strong sense of the sexes? Um, is, is there anything you learned from them that, that informs your position today? Mm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say so, not directly, although one of the things, but this point is not a point that's original to me. I, I do find working in, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I know a fair amount about lowland South American indigenous people. I know quite a bit about Guarani speaking people. So my, my expertise is narrow, but one of the things I would say that I, I notice um, having most of my research done in the South American context, but working in a North American, North American context is many of the assertions made about what is true about indigenous people generally um, don't, don't fit South America. They don't, and they, they seem not to 
have an awareness of the incredible diversity of mm. peoples and the incredible diversity of practices. So, so one of, and I don't, I don't want to accuse scholars of this, but one of the sort of pop assertions you'll see is the idea that um, all indigenous people have, have a notion of two-spiritedness and all indigenous people have at least a, a kind of third gender position. And I, you know, that's, that's really not true. That's, there are a lot of different indigenous cultures some of them have those ideas, some of them don't. And I, I mean, I, it's not, indigenous educators, people like Faye Blaney have talked about this, um, but just coming from knowing what I know about South America, some of the assertions that are made really, really don't fit, you know, and, and but that's, that's not, I mean, Guarani culture is, is quite a macho culture, like it, it has a lot Mm -hmm. That's something that's very explicitly the, the kind of valuation of masculinity is very, but that's um, the, 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 the community I work with, they're actually the product of a pre-Columbian, you know, a history before Europeans arrived, mm -hmm. that there was a combination of this sort of very macho Guarani society and a much more sort of female-centric matriarchal Arawakan society that the the encounter of those two societies because of migrations long before Europeans arrived had this really interesting unfolding in the case of the Isoseño, the people that I that I have lived in and worked with for years. Um, so there's really interesting gender dynamics there. They don't map in any way onto some of the assertions made about gender fluidity that is supposedly true sex is a colonial construct right right it doesn't it it's it's really ludicrous and and there's a way in which although these assertions are made supposedly in the voice of decolonization they seem very imperialist because they make mm. assertions about all indigenous people speaking from a specific kind of late modern progressive Canadian perspective mm -hmm. and then project onto all of the Americas, the entire history of the Americas. And I, th and I think, you know, I, that's not, that's not decolonization. That's kind of the colonization of decolonization or something or some like weird curly cue on top of, um, it's sort of replicating. What did they call that idealism of, of native people? Um, like sort of the noble savage idea. Yeah, the noble savage idea, you know, mm -hmm. about a hundred years ago. Um, I was in New Zealand a few years ago and, and I was reading a bit about the history and, and um, the, the Europeans came up with this plan that they would let the warlike Maori onto the South Island and that resulted in a total extermination of the peoples at the South Island. Oh, okay. And so I was at a museum where they were doing the haka, the you know, the war dance. And I said to, to my daughter, who's very politically correct, I said, there's kind of a hypocrisy here because this warlike nature resulted in the extermination of an entire people. And the goal of the Europeans was to eliminate the local people and then they could farm the land. There's mm -hmm. nobody there anymore. They've mm -hmm. all gone. And my daughter was a little bit offended. I kind of understand it because we've idealized native peoples. But if, if they have things like a war dance, there's a purpose for that, right? They don't just have war dances to to be peaceful 
there are native peoples who were much more peaceful and they tended to get wiped out by those who weren't right that there's, and that's part of the diversity yeah so it's not you know you don't you want to be careful not to use this to kind of excuse european imperialism to be like well everybody no, no. so but but you're right that some of these sort of pop ideas that circulate in the name of progressivism are 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 silly and and they're um they're disrespectful because they they have they're in they're not informed by the real interesting diversity of indigenous mm -hmm. histories. Like sometimes when people talk about indigenizing this or that, I think, well, what version of indigeneity? Because the the version of indigeneity that was operative in the Inca Empire, some aspects of it were fantastic, but some aspects of it, you know, the Inca Empire was a real empire. So, so mm -hmm. very imperialist. It's pretty horrible for a lot of people. Right, you know, so it, it had some, so I, I, I think that um, these kinds of, some of these, dis, this, these discussions that are kind of very, um, uh, they're politicized in a way that they that they make really selective use of evidence. Um, yeah, I I'm I'm not for it. I guess. Okay. Um, okay. So, so we're getting close to the end of our time. Okay. I, I wanted to bring up. We've mentioned J.K. Rowling a few times, and people might not um, mm -hmm. know exactly how she got herself in trouble uh, most lately. Um, I don't know if she's like the biggest seller of books in the last hundred years, but she must be right up there. Right, there's a, there's a lot of, of superlative statistics attached to yes. her career, yeah. So she said something about, um, somebody used the term people who menstruate as opposed to women, and, and J.K. Mm -hmm. Rowling said, there used to be a word for that, I can't right, remember. Right. Right? She came up with some uh, forms that all eventually got to the point of, we used to have the word women, mm -hmm. and that if you're a, a woman, you know, whether you present as a man, you still menstruate, you still have breasts, you still have a uterus, you can still bear a child. And, and that is being a, a female. And, and again, on the other side, um, they, they don't talk about people with prostates, but maybe we'll get there, you know, of, of males who have the ability to fertilize a female, who don't have the ability to bear a child, who don't menstruate. You know, there's all these characteristics that come with um, biology. Mm -hmm. But there's been quite a big effort to cancel uh, J.K. Rowling, which is probably impossible, but <laughs> you're trying. Right. So do you have any thoughts on, on that latest uh, fuss? Well, nothing original, but I think one thing that has been really illuminating about the J.K. Rowling is the, is, you know, she, really was very polite in her and very kind in her long statement about why she holds the position that she does. And the, the onslaught of really scary, frightening, misogynistic, violent mm -hmm. attacks and response, I think have been very clarifying. Because if you, if you are a woman who has been sort of in what are sometimes called the gender identity wars for a while, you you totally knew what was coming because you've seen it a thousand mm -hmm. times before. Mm -hmm. But it's been happening, um, it's been happening sort of out of the public eye. And it's actually, it's not only been happening out of the public eye, 
many of the women expressing these views have been pushed out of the public line. They're banned from Twitter, mm -hmm. from Facebook, their blogs are censored. So, but this happened, everybody was watching, right? Everybody was watching J.K. Rowling make this very reasonable and compassionate statement about why she thinks what she thinks. Mm -hmm. um, and of, of, for, of course, for some people, it brought to their attention that this was a debate at all, and they were kind of gobsmacked that anybody thinks that it's possible to change biological sex. But then to watch in real time the that that she can you know she should suck my girl dick and she she should die in a fire and and her no right. should buy her books just the the incredible violent misogyny in response it shows you it really sh I mean not you shows everyone right what what is happening in this debate and I I don't th I don't think the cool groovy feminist side is the side that's that is um calling for J.K. Rowling to, to choke on their lady cock. I, you know, I don't think that's the cool feminist side. And I think everybody sees, and that's been, I mean, I'm very, I'm, I'm sorry for her that she's had to go through that. Although, you know, she seems pretty tough and she's got lots of money, so she's probably gonna survive it okay. Um, but I, I think it has been, uh, I, I really appreciate her doing it because it's let everyone see in real time what gender critical feminists have been seeing for a long time. And I haven't seen anything similar from the other side, right? I, I've seen a lot mm -hmm. of violent rhetoric, uh, mm -hmm. misogynistic rhetoric um, from men who dress as, as women but have no intention of cha changing their genitalia, right? They, they wanna put on a dress and that makes them a woman mm -hmm. and yet they, they still have these aggressive male sexual impulses. That that if if you don't go along with them as a woman, that, that they're basically going to threaten to rape you. Right, right. That, rape that. threats, death threats. I mean, which which is which are classic forms of male violence. And I'm not saying all mm -hmm. are violent in that way, but but um, one of the things feminists. Well, I find it quite shocking. Right, and it's scary <laughs> that that really you know male violence really is the worst problem in the world, and and I. It's, it's scary for women, it's scary for men. I can understand why um, gender non-conforming men don't wanna be sent into men's spaces because men's spaces are scary, but the answer is not to make women's spaces scarier. Mm -hmm. The answer is to figure out how to make men's spaces safe for gender non-conforming men, right? That's, that's yes. that would be nice. Nice yeah, I men. mean, we, as a man, I should be able to accept that somebody who's obviously a man who's wearing makeup and a dress comes in and I realize, okay, this is a transgender right. person. They can use the male washroom and because washrooms are set up on biology, right? Yeah. I mean, we have urinals because men have penises, right? And, yeah. and uh, you know, um, in a women's washroom, there might be uh, a vending machine with, um, you know, menstrual products or, or something like that. Right. It, it's, it makes a lot of sense. It's very practical to have um, washrooms set up on, on a sex space. Plus, there's the safety issues. You know, women are literally with their pants down. They're very vulnerable. And of course, uh, men in the same space, even if they don't sexually assault them, can mock them or, or whatever. A woman right. who has to rinse bloody panties in, a, in the sink is not going to want to do that in a in a co-ed in a co-ed right. space. But also, you know, men men should feel 
we should we should need we should want there to be a higher standard for men's safety as well. Men's prisons shouldn't be as dangerous for men as they are. Mm-hmm. Men's men's spaces should be safer for men. It shouldn't be that men's spaces are already so unsafe that if you're the least bit gender nonconforming, you're really at frightening risk in those spaces. That's mm-hmm, terrible. Mm-hmm. But that's something. I mean, that's something else that feminists have said for years, right? That that we yeah. Um, that feminism is is feminism is for women, but many of its sort of side effects will be beneficial for men too. Um, so yeah, I agree. There there are many men who feel uh, constrained by macho gender norms, just mm-hmm. as women feel constrained um, by the the um, y- you know the ultra feminist ideals that are shown in, in so many magazines and, and various um, media. Anyway, we, we've kind of come to the end of our time and Alrighty. I'd just like to ask if you have anything else you'd like to add before we close? No, you know, I had dozens of thoughts along the way thinking, oh, I want to return to that thought, but I, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground. So thank you. For, it's been very interesting. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Um, yes, so. I'll send you a link to the podcast. Fantastic. In about a week. All right. Thank, okay. Thanks, David. Nice thank talking you, to you. Thank you, Kathleen. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to episode 261 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. Like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Join our discussion group at facebook.com slash groups slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at InfectiousMyth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to InfectiousMyth on Patreon.com or LiberaPay.com. Thank you for all your love and moral support and ideas about treatment. Until next week, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.